I'll be catching some rays down in Jamboree, washing the soot and grime off my soul. Riding the waves down in Jamboree, refusing to think about getting old. No, I'll never forget about Alkenstar, the gunmetal gleam and the rowdy bars. Look back with a smile at the good old days, catching some rays down in Jamboree. As the final chords fade and are overtaken by applause, a bard with sea-green skin and flowing ocean-hued hair and beard bows deeply from the stage of a raucous tavern. Within the hot-foot hippodrome, a clockwork racing track by day and a den of vice by night, the clamor of inebriated patrons mingles with the sound of elation and defeat from the gambling parlor at its other end. Light twinkles off many rings on the seafoam hand grasping the neck of a violin, Thank you. Thank you very much. There ain't no crowd like the one here at the Hippo. I'm Jamare George. You fine folk have a lovely evening and tip your bartenders. The bard blows a kiss at the crowd, puts his violin back in its case, and exits through the door behind the stage. In the curving hallway beyond, he greets the employees and other performers as he passes, jovially accepting their greetings and compliments. Making his way to one of the shared dressing rooms, George splashes water on his face and runs his dripping hands through his hair, darkening the alternating blues and greens. A bald man enters and raps against the doorway. Good set, fishy is. Mr. Muglin will see you now. The performer's back stiffens. Ambrose Mugland. Glass had sent George to meet with Mugland, but still, the prospect of actually seeing the man momentarily alarms him. He thinks back to the conversation with the boss of the Powder Keg Punks. You can't convince him to all what is this contract, Georgie. The gang needs the gold, and it never hurts to get it good with the Ambrose Buckland. The Monkey Goblin's eagerness was betrayed by his tail swinging back and forth as he had entrusted George with the task. Presently, George looks back to Skinner. All right, thanks. Uh, I'm coming. Just give me a second to dry off and change shirts. Mr. Muglin does not like to be kept waiting. His time is valuable. Following the bald man, George is ushered into a private room on the second floor. The room is large and comfortable, hazy with cigar smoke. A small chandelier lights the room directly above a rectangular card table. At the far end sits a blonde-haired halfling, a scar jutting out below his well-manicured mustache. Ambrose Muglin's nimble hands shuffle a deck of cards. Jamaray George, I believe. Have a seat. I understand you have business with me, young man? Uh, yes, sir. My boss wanted... Now, now. We have just met. It would be impolite not to get to know each other a bit before we discuss such matters. I know just the way for us to kindle a new relationship. Do you play Alpenstar Hero, Georgie boy? On occasion, sir, but I'm sure I'm not half as good as you are. Ah, uh, it seems that you already know a bit more about me than I do about you. That is not idea in Alkenstar, Hero, but perhaps you are a natural. Let us put that to the test. I'll deal first, and as we play rounds, we can grease the wheels of business, yes? 
Luglin shuffles again, allows George to cut the deck, and deals one card at a time, alternating between them before placing three cards face down in the center of the table. I'll let you open the bet. George places a silver down on his side of the table, holding a pair of lawful goods. Muglin matches the bet, placing his own silver down. Then he flips the first card. The slack-jawed face of the fool seems to peer up at George. Ah, the fool. Such a misunderstood card, don't you think? Now tell me, George, how did someone like you end up with the powder punks? Do you have a taste for explosives, do you? Uh, well, Mr. Muglin, it's, it's hard living in a place like Alkenstar. See, me and Glass are both from Jalmarain. The way I see it, folks find what similarities they can, and they stick together. With a tap on the table, George checks. He'll wait it out. Muglin raises another silver. George matches, and Muglin flips over the second card. The traitor. Not ideal. George decides to see if Muglin really has something or if this is just a bluff. Nonchalantly, Muglin calls, and he turns over the Tangled Briar. Oh my, the traitor and the Tangled Briar back to back. Don't you just love when the hero mimics the situation, George? Tell me, what is your trade, and how did you come to be in this Tangled Briar of clockwork that is Smog City? George looks at the handsome halfling's face, trying to get any kind of read on Ambrose's implications, but there is nothing to read in his expression. A perfect poker face. George feels tension build inside him, but he keeps his own expression taut and answers. Well, as you know, I'm a bod by trade, Mr. Muglin, though I help out with Glass's operation when he needs me. Like I said, I was born in Jalmarais, but... I've been an Alkenstar as long as I can remember. Mom was an athlete, a damn good one too, but she got herself tangled up with a genie and got herself exiled. She ended up in Alkenstar when I was just a baby. Is that so? Well, that explains the ears. Cards on the table, young man. Muglin lays down first the Inquisitor, then the Trumpet. A full house, constitution full of neutrality. George lays down his cards almost timidly. Only three of a kind. Muglin smiles and slides all the silver to his side of the table. Well, I guess the trumpet's just not the instrument for you. Muglin is more aggressive in the second hand. He doesn't allow George to deal, but the betting starts with Muglin as though he had. When the fiend is turned up, Muglin drops three silver onto the table. George calls, hoping strength will be on his side. When the second card, the Paladin, is turned, Muglin's left eyebrow twitches slightly, despite his easy smile. I've got him now, George thinks to himself. Three more silver appear on the table on George's side. Muglin calls after a few seconds of deliberation. The final card is turned. The Avalanche. Muglin smiles his easy smile and places his hand full of evil on the table. George's strength had failed him. Oh, well, that's a tough break, kid. Tell me, are you a family man, Mr... Poole. And no, I wouldn't say so. The lie came easy. Ah, the pools of Jamoray. 
Well, there's your next song title, Free of Charge. And is your dear mother, Mrs. Poole, I presume, still with us? A bead of sweat trickles down George's temple. The second lie was more difficult. Uh, no, Mr. Muglin. Mom's been gone a long time. I don't, I don't really like to talk about it. Ah, uh, a sore spot. We've all got one, and I think for more than a few of us, it is our mother's. Well, at least she didn't have to live long enough to see her baby boy mixed up with such disreputable small-timers as those powder kegs you hang around with. Bless her soul. George clenches his jaw before realizing he's doing it, and then forces himself to relax. They say that three's a mystical number, Mr. Poole. Perhaps your luck is about to change. And Muglin shuffles, deals a third time. George glances at his hand and places a silver. Muglin calls and turns over the courtesan. Well, the courtesan is said to represent political intrigue, but you don't strike me as the political type. No intrigue here, I'm sure. Just two new friends having a friendly wager. Muglin lets out an unnerving chuckle <laughs> as his eyes seem to pierce into George's soul. George knows that the courtesan also represents the superficiality of social niceties. Ominous. But George hopes to make his own luck and raises another silver. Again, Muglin matches and this time turns over the theater. Ah, the theater. A card of prophecy. The true prophet acts as the puppet of the gods, they say. Again, uncertain of Muglin's true meaning, but with his only option to play forward, George presses on and raises two silver and casts his eyes at Muglin, unblinking. Muglin smirks and places five gold on the table. I don't have the gold to match that, Mr. Muglin. I guess I'll have to cede the victory to you after all. Muglin just stares at George with an intensity that almost shakes him. Almost. If you can't afford to play the game, don't pull a chair up to the table, boy. I'll be honest. I am curious about you. You've piqued my interest. We'll finish this hand. And if you win, you can keep the gold, and you can scurry back and tell your boss I've awarded him the contract. But if I win, you get squat, and you tell that goblin boss of yours that if I catch him popping his fireworks in this city again, his whole little gang won't live to see the end of the month. The two men stare at each other a long while before finally George nods ever so slightly. You mind if I smoke? Of course not, Mr. Poole. Make yourself comfortable. In fact, I'll join you. George reaches into his coat pocket to grab his cigarette case. Carefully and silently praying to Rory that he was slick enough for Muglin not to notice, George palms the betrayal card hidden in his sleeve and replaces the card he was actually dealt, the Eclipse. He was hoping it wouldn't come to this. It's too risky. But it's time to go all in. He has to land this contract and keep the door open to further business with Mugland. George pulls out a hand-rolled cigarette, lights a match, and takes a deep inhale. Uh, 
that's better. I'd offer you one, but I can tell you're a cigar man. Indeed. Shall we? George nods again, muggling grins, and turns over the last card. On the right is a man made of fire. On the left is a woman made of water. The lawful neutral aligned charisma card. The marriage sits at the end of the row, laden with fate. We'll lay them down together, George. Slowly, the two men lay down their cards. Muglin's hand displays the crows next to the sickness, a flush, neutral across the board. George, barely stopping his seafoam hand from trembling, lays down his cards at the end of the upturned row. Next to the marriage sits the twin, and finally, the betrayal. A straight flush, neutral and charisma. For a moment, the eyes behind Muglin's easy smile are as deep and intimidating as gun barrels. If looks could kill, George would meet his end this very moment. You've got spine, kid. The potential for either a flush or a straight was there, but the odds of pulling off both, well, I suppose, Mr. Poole, your luck really has turned. Take your winnings and take this to your boss, for their eyes only. Muglin places an envelope on the table with that same easy smile that doesn't quite reach his eyes. George is uncertain if Muglin is angered by this loss or if this is what he's been planning this whole time. George can't help but feel like somehow he's still lost. The next day, George waits under a bridge next to the Estrati River. An older human man approaches, his trench coat collar pulled up to block his neck from the spray of the river. You're a long way from Jamaray, young man, but the river suits you. Harlan, listen, you gotta go. Get out of town. Uh, find somewhere to hold up. What is it? What's so urgent? Muglin's targeting you, Harlan. I got the contract. I actually got it. But I looked in the envelope and read the requirements. Harlan, I don't know how you pissed off Muglin, but he wants you dead. Or at the very least, scared. Harlan, they're going to burn down your office. I know how the powder kegs operate. They'll try to make it look like an accident, but Glass can't resist a chance to set something ablaze. Okay, okay. Calm down. I'll, I'll find a hole to crawl in. You weren't followed, were you? No, of course not. I wouldn't be good at what I'd do if I couldn't tell if I had a tail. Put a little more faith in me than that. After all, I taught you everything you know. Yeah, yeah, I know. Look, I gotta get back. I've already got enough eyes on me as it is, and now I think I've made an impression with Muglin. If I can get in with his crew, the sky's the limit on making a real case. The powder keg punks are... Uh, they're small potatoes. But Muglin, that's the big fish we've been trying to hook. We know, kid. Do what you've got to do. We'll hold off on the punks for a bit. Don't worry about me, I'll be fine. I got insurance. An office is a small price to pay we can nail Muglin to the wall. Two days later, George walks along the Ustrati River toward the bridge he and Harlan use as a meeting spot. He feels guilty about helping the powder keg punks burn down Harlan's office, but an informant has to maintain his cover, not only for the mission, but for his own safety. He thinks about how much easier life would be if he were a normal shield marshal, but this is important. 
Having secured and completed Muglin's contract, the powder keg punks might be able to get a second contract, then a third. Muglin is careful, but if George can gain his trust, he might be able to get enough dirt on him to put together a case. Mixed in with his guilt is an excitement at that possibility. If he could only find a way to take down the most powerful man in Alkenstar, he could finally get out. He could escape the fear, the paranoia, and the danger that comes with being Harlan's informant. As he approaches the bridge, the Ustrati calls to him. It calls to him like Jalmare calls to him, like a way out. But the Ustrati is bookended by the shattered range to the south and the hell-fallen cliffs to the north. The Ustrati is a trap and Jalmaray is hundreds of miles away across the Mana Waste. George snapped out of his daydream of freedom, and he sees the limp form of his friend and mentor, Harlan, lying dead under the bridge. He runs to the old man's side and kneels down in a pool of blood. Harlan's eyes stare up, unseeing, to the underside of the bridge above. Sticking up from his chest is the hilt of a switchblade knife, and his shock takes George a moment to notice the Harrow card pinned to his friend and mentor. The betrayal. Mugland. Mugland did this, but how? George can almost hear the voice of Harland in his head answering, with a knife, dummy. But the question is why? A sudden sickening thought occurs to George, and then he knows. This is my fault. Mugland saw right through me and laid a trap. George had never put much stock into prophetic insights of the Harrow, but the betrayal card pinned to Harlan's chest tells George everything he needs to know. Warning Harlan had blown his cover. Now with Harlan dead, there's no record of George ever working for the Shield Marshals. All the time he spent infiltrating the criminal underbelly of Alkenstar amounts to nothing. With one single violent act, Muglin had erased the line between informant and criminal. Suddenly, the wail of sirens pierces the afternoon air. Frantic realization dawns on the informant. It's a setup. I should have seen this coming. George scrambles back up the causeway, his heart racing. His feet pound the cobblestones as he makes a break for the winding streets of Smokeside. He runs like his life depends on it, taking a left turn, then a right, then another left, seeking the safety of the darkest and least trafficked alleys of Ferris Quarter. Finally, he stops to catch his breath, the sirens barely audible back along the river. He leans, panting against a post next to a rundown bodega. Having regained his composure, George looks at the buildings around him, trying to orient himself, when a poster on the wall of a smithy catches his eye. An artist's rendition of a handsome water genasi looks back at him. The circlet adorning his brow matches his own, and the artist had even done a decent job with the fin-like ears and alternating stripes of color in his shoulder-length hair and full but well-shaped beard. Beneath the drawing, the thick text proclaims, Wanted, Jamaray George. Crimes, key member of the Powder Keg Punks Gang. Murder of a shield marshal, arson. <laughs>